Bibles this morning to 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, uh, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. You just wave and get their attention. They'll put a Bible in your hand. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord uh, to you today. Well, you know, you live week to week, and here we are on Sunday mornings in a prophecy update, and, and uh, every day, every week's a prophecy update in the world. Some of you followed the recent uh, coup this week uh, on top of the horrible events in Nice. Uh, but this uh, coup that was attempted by the military in Turkey and uh, in an attempt to protect, uh, at least outwardly, a, an attempt to protect uh, a, the democratic state in Turkey. Turkey is a democracy, but it is an Islamic nation. Uh, some people are feeling like the president himself set the whole thing up. It did look like a pretty weak attempt at a coup. But whatever the circumstances, it allows this president now uh, to further Islamicize the, the nation, and uh, which will ultimately make it even more hostile toward Israel and a part of becoming a part of that confederation of nations with Gog and Magog, who will ultimately attempt that invasion. It's all just falling uh, into place before our eyes. But for this morning, for our purposes, 2 Timothy chapter 3. But know this that in the last times, uh, in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power and from such people turn away. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage that is going to outlive the heavens and the earth, and we thank you, Lord, that we can take these five verses and ask you by your Holy Spirit to conform and fashion our thinking, our feeling, Lord, our perceptions, our understanding, our processing of life all around us into how you see things. And we pray, Lord, that you would take this magnificent, all of your word is magnificent, take this passage as well, Lord, and we pray that you would further conform us in the image of Christ as we study it today. We acknowledge our need for you, our, for your word to not just be something that we hear and that we hold within some reservoir within our mind, but that it also affects our thinking and our feeling and our doing as well. And we pray that you would give this word that place in our lives. We pray for those that stand before you right now that have never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. We pray, Lord, that today you would cause a light to go on for them and that today would be the day that they would surrender to you, put their faith in Jesus, and enter into the life that you have created them for. We pray for that work of your Holy Spirit that no one else can do, Lord, in their lives as well. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This morning we want to continue our current series of what the Bible refers to as the last days of the end times which have to do with the Bible's description of the world immediately prior to Jesus' return at the rapture of the church and then at his second coming seven years later. And this morning I want us to turn our focus to what the Bible speaks related to what will be the moral condition of the world in the last days. Now, biblically, there is a sense in which the entire church age, that period of time from the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost all the way up to and including the rapture of the church before the start of the tribulation, that all of that constitutes uh, the last days. 
but there's also a sense in which repeatedly over the last 2,000 years of human history that the moral condition of the world has ebbed and it has flowed. It has expanded and contracted between good and bad regarding the moral characteristics that are listed here as we've read them in our Bible passage this morning. But the Bible teaches that one day the moral condition of the world is going to plunge headlong into what is listed here in these verses, and it will never recover. There will be no repentance as in past times. There will be no spiritual revival brought by the Holy Spirit uh, to turn people around, but instead mankind will plunge uninterrupted into the moral darkness that is described here and leading to the rapture of the church and the seven-year period of judgment upon the earth known as the Great Tribulation, and that judgment will be a well-deserved judgment. I do agree with the famous uh, Greek Bible scholar Kenneth Wiest, who wrote of this passage in his multiple-volume work, Wiest's Word Studies in the Greek New Testament. He declares the expression in the last days refers to the time immediately preceding the rapture of the church and the second advent of the Lord Jesus. Warren Wiersbe writes, uh, affirming this in his commentary, the last days, he writes, is a period of time that actually began with the life and ministry of Christ on earth. However, the New Testament indicates that the last days refers particularly to the state of the church before the coming of Christ. Now, as Christians, we should be especially alert to the moral decline that we read about in these verses. They are designated in, uh, uh, to us as an indication, a sign of the last days, but we should pay special note to them uh, today as Christians because now, like no other time in history, this prophecy is coupled with other fulfillments of biblical prophecies in the Bible, the rebirth of the nation of Israel, uh, Israel being described as surrounded by enemies that seek her destruction and will ultimately attack her, the potential for Europe to become a world-dominating uh, uh, empire and become a revived uh, Roman empire and, and the capacity to become that under the leadership of the Antichrist. You couple all, put all of those things together, and we ought to view these five verses with a special sobriety. Perilous times, he tells us, are coming. Know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come, verse 1. And the word perilous, it means fierce, it means dangerous, it means violent, it means hard. It means hard to bear. It's one thing for those to be words on a page. It's another thing for that to become the condition of the world. And God says that will become the condition of the world morally in the last days. That perilous word perilous is used in classical Greek in the ancient world to describe both wild animals and a raging sea. Now, the reason that the last days will be perilous morally is given to us at the beginning of verse uh, 2, and Paul writes by the Spirit, for, uh, and for is a reason word, for men will be, and we'll stop right there for a moment, because here we have the reason for the perilous times, the moral condition of mankind in the last days. And the reason the world will become so fierce and the reason that it will become so dangerous is because of a collapse in the morals and the characters of people in the last days. The world is the way that it is today because mankind is uh, the way that we are Today, it is because the, the world is simply a reflection of the other, and the world is getting worse and worse, and it is doing so simply because people are getting worse and worse mor morally and in terms of personal character. It'd be nice to blame the kangaroos, 
It'd be nice to blame ostriches or locusts or something else for the condition of the world, but the responsibility lays firmly upon us as human beings. And this, of course, the collapse of morality and character within people's life, this is the problem of the world at its core. And I only mention it because the world seems to be so largely blind to the truth of this today. The idea that no nation or even the world itself will ever rise above the moral quality of its citizens. And if it is able to rise above that, it will only be able to do so for a short time. This idea that we can know long-term economic prosperity in our nation, independent of who and what we are morally, is nonsense. But it's a deception, and it's a deception that is exposed every four years. When we try and elect the next president or the next senators or the next Congress people to try and fix through government what is being caused by a collapse of morality of the citizens. No business, no industry, no nation can truly thrive if it must operate in an immoral culture, a culture of laziness or employee theft, theft or the corruption of government and so forth. And you look at the nations of the world like Mexico or Venezuela or Russia where corruption has become systemic and certainly only the businesses and people that prosper are the ones that are chosen uh, by the corrupt government to allow them uh, to uh, uh, prosper. But everybody else is out of luck. And the Bible says that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. This idea that world peace will ever be achieved in a moral, morally decaying world is nonsense or that moral decay can ever lead to a safer world as opposed to always leading in human history the world into increasing instability and anarchy. And there is less and less awareness and less and less willingness to accept that the condition of the world around us might be because of who and what we are as human beings that we might actually be responsible. And it is like we have all of these problems, but no one can point the problem or the finger at the true problems because we don't believe in moral absolutes anymore or that there's one morality that's higher than another morality. There's no set definition now uh, or standard for right and wrong. So then how do you fix these things? You don't fix them. They just continue to run, and then they continue to become worse. All that mankind is left with, all that government is left with, is to throw more money at the problems, more good intention at the problems of the world. But the problem is not money, and it's not self-esteem. The problem is with sin. It is with moral corruption. It is with carnality. And only the gospel offers the ultimate solution to all of that, but we know at least in our nation uh, today, Christianity is currently out of favor. It's in the doghouse. So we've been relegated to a corner where we can be easily ignored. And so the solution sits in this kind of place of obscurity while all of these, uh, this kind of uh, brokenness continues to expand. Well, let's look at what the Bible declares to be the moral condition of the world prior to Jesus' re his return, uh, where all of this is heading, and see if it looks anything like the world uh, that you live in today. He declares in verse 2 that men will be lovers of themselves, that the world will become progressively more and more selfish, more and more self-occupied, uh, and more and more self-consumed. Here's a definition for selfishness, since we never hear the word anymore. Uh, we might need to be briefed on this. Uh, selfishness is defined as concerning, uh, concerned excessively and exclusively with oneself. 
seeking or concentrating on one's own advantage, pleasure, or well-being without regard for others. And, of course, we see this growing exponentially in our country and in the world as a whole today. We're all witnesses to how fully selfism and selfishness is nurtured within our culture. And today it's interesting, there's virtually no negative stigma or a sense of shame attached with selfishness or selfism today. When I was a boy, if you wanted to shame uh, someone who was being selfish in a classroom, you could hardly shame a young boy or a young girl more than if the teacher declared in front of the entire class, Damien, you are being selfish. Well, your face would turn all red and you would just wish you could disappear uh, in your uh, desk. It was one of the worst things that could be said about a person is that they're being selfish. I can't tell you the last time I have even heard the word selfish used publicly, much less someone being scolded for being uh, selfish. Instead, we nurture self-love and self-focus and selfishness through the whole self-esteem movement that's been going on uh, for decades and has been popular for such a long time. And then we do so, and we're shocked when it produces generations of self-loving, self-consumed, selfish human beings who place themselves above the health and the good of everything and everyone around them, and then who demand that everything and everyone in life revolve around them, and they live under the belief that the rest of the world merely exists to provide them with a context in which to live their peerless life. New expressions, I'll tell you, of selfishness in people, it seems that it awaits us every single day. Now, on a personal level, or, and not only on a personal level, but on a national and international level, selfishness always uh, destroys whatever it infects. It always does. This is not a virtue in mankind. It always destroys health. It will always destroy what it, inf it infects. It will destroy a marriage. It will destroy a business partnership. It will destroy any athletic team that is striving for excellence. It will destroy any and all personal relationships. And why? Because it's not how we've been created to live. The elevation of selfism and selfishness above all else, the expression of it at the expense of others and even God, does it have its origin in God? The Bible teaches that it has its origin in Satan. The fall of Satan is described in Isaiah chapter 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High God, and yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. Now, Satan definitely has an eye problem in that passage, and increasingly the world does too. And the origin of it is all in him. And thus, the Holy Spirit begins here because this self-love is at the root of the entire list that follows it in these verses. Second, men will be lovers of money, that is, fond of silver. People will become more and more greedy, more and more materialistic and money-loving. So the love of money and material things will become more important to people than loving God or loving people. And when the world comes to esteem people successful, more on the basis of the amount of money that they possess as opposed to the quality of their moral character, then the world is going to become a very cold place, a very hard place, a very brutal and loveless place where it's going to be all about the survival of the fittest and the greediest. It will turn the world into a world you do not want to live in. 
The next is boasters, and this speaks about being a braggart. Here's the proud man. Some people are proud and they don't verbalize it. Here is the proud man who verbalizes it. He's a braggart. Now, remember when being called a braggart was something that had a negative stigma within our culture? I'm going way back now. But you'd look and say, stop bragging about yourself. And again, a person would feel this big. Now, it's it, it not only not looked down upon, there's no stigma attached to it. I mean, it, it is the, uh, you know, something that is considered virtuous rather than the characteristic of, uh, uh, of someone who is insecure or extremely proud. It's accepted. If you've got it, flaunt it. You know, I mean, make sure everybody knows how important and talented and how awesome you are. This overuse of the word awesome, as I heard somebody saying on a TED Talk recently, with the, you know, the uh, overexpressiveness of the language. He says, we use the word awesome so much. What happens, what word do we now use when we actually see something that's awesome? You know, neutralize the word. And I think about, you know, so much of social media today is uh, not all of it certainly, but so much of it is a platform for boasters or bragging or uh, that letting everybody know how important and significant I am. Fourth is listed uh, proud, uh, to see myself above others is what pride means. And again, it wasn't that long ago that if you called somebody proud or you said, hey, you're conceited, again, that would have been something that would have shamed them from uh, how they were conducting themselves, but it's not a cutting remark anymore. You see how all of this is advancing within the culture and within the world, even within some of our lifetimes, and now it's on steroids in terms of how fast it is moving. But again, there's no future uh, in this because it always leads to conflict. Pride always does, and the more it marks the world, the more unstable the world becomes. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10. By pride comes nothing but strife, always, on a personal level, on a national level, on an international level. Blasphemers are listed in verse 2. This refers to abusive speech, and it speaks of the fact that man's speech is going to become less and less gracious in the last days, less and less generous, and it's going to become more and more abusive. It's going to become more and more hurtful uh, and with the intention to hurt. And so people are going to show less and less restraint verbally uh, concerning what it is that they say. And today we witness it. We see virtually no restraint in human speech. The mo I mean, the moment something comes into a person's mind, it's, a, it's almost on their lips. And we see how abusive speech advanced in entertainment, in certain kinds of music, in movies, trash talk in sports. But it's not just listed in sport, uh, limited to sports. It is a part of everyday life, and we hear it. Even in political campaigns, many of those who are seeking the very highest offices in our land, they desire to become our leaders. They think nothing about blaspheming others or lying about an opponent in order to win. I hate that a person virtually has to become a liar and a blasphemer to win political office in the United States of America and indeed the whole world. But again, it's a mark of what God says will characterize the world in the last days. Sixth is listed disobedient to parents, and so there'll be an increase of no respect for parental authority, greater and greater rebellion against parental authority. Now, it might seem like an odd thing. We're going through this list, and it's like very, very sobering, and then to here include in this very sobering list disobedient to parents. But this might be the most dangerous and harmful of all because it undermines the stability of the family unit. And the family unit is the cornerstone of civilization. The family unit as it's described in the Bible. 
And so this disrespect for parents is very, very dangerous uh, stuff, and the last days will be characterized by a breakdown of parental authority and of the family unit, and you see that everywhere, not just in the United States, but around the world. Seventh is listed is unthankful or ungrateful. This is the entitlement mentality that so many people talk about, so many people having today within our culture, but within the world as a whole, where people just assume everything is owed to them. Well, if I believe that everything is owed to me, then the first casualty of that thinking is going to be thankfulness, because if I feel that it's owed to me, then why would I thank anyone for providing it to me? And so you end up with this culture that demands and receives and is less and less thankful for uh, those things. And uh, it is to be without even an elementary presence of appreciation. And thankfulness is disappearing in our world. Unholiness is listed. And today, for the most part, the last thing that people want to be known for today is being holy or being associated with righteousness. I mean, there goes the movie contract or the record contract or the promotion or the whatever it might be. And sad to say that uh, there are people, even Christians, who flee from wanting to be known as righteous or being holy. Number nine is listed is unloving, and the word, the Greek word that is used there is a storgo. It means without natural affection. And storgos is the love, the Greek word is, is the word that was used for the love that holds the family unit together. It speaks of the natural love that a husband has for his wife, that his, a wife has for her husband that the children have for the parents and the parents have for the children. In the Greek language, when you put the letter A before a word, it then takes on the opposite meaning. And so, a storgos means without love, without this love. And God declares that people will lose this love in the last days. And evidence for it collapsing in the world is all around us. Uh, widespread divorce for unbiblical reasons or just for any reason. It's, it is to be without natural affection. The breakdown of the family unit that's happening in our nation and around the world. It is a fulfillment of this without natural affection. And as the, goes its families, so goes any nation or the world. The current holocaust that is abortion follows under this word. Abortion is, uh, I will, lover of self, run amok, where we are told that my will and I will is more important than anything else in life, even more important than one's own baby. Now, I hesitate uh, to bring the subject up this morning, but you can't talk about the moral condition of the last days without talking about this subject. And I don't want to cause undue pain to people who have uh, had an abortion and uh, been involved in that, whether male or female, and then have confessed that as sin to God and repented of it and received His, his forgiveness. But it's important to see and to take a good hard look at how our nation and how our world is absolutely drunk on I will. How many of us were horrified a number of months ago when the ISIS terrorists beheaded those innocent laborers from uh, Egypt on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea? They videotaped it and was broadcast to the whole world. An awful thing uh, to witness. But that happens 3,287 times a day in the civilized, sophisticated, educated United States alone in the form of abortions. And many people don't even blink at that anymore or have the slightest concern at how God views it. Or they fail to give any 
sober consideration to abortion from the perspective of the baby or what it has to say, this thing called abortion, about us as a nation? What does it say about us as a people or as a culture when it is not only protected by the laws of the nation that we live in, but it is also tacitly found, funded by our tax dollars. The fact of the matter is, is that we have forfeited all moral authority as a nation as long as this stain is upon our nation. And I will, I will, I will live irregardless of what God says or its impact upon others will turn us into a nation and a world of monsters. And we are well on our way. And it's important to stop and to think about these things. In the Old Testament, when God gave the promised land to the children of Israel and called them to drive out the Canaanites from the land, one of the reasons that he did so was because of the Canaanite practice of sacrificing their children to the god Molech. And this great image of Molech would be fashioned out of metal. A fire would be started at his base. He would be lit and heated up until the metal image was absolutely uh, red hot, and then his arms would be extended and the babies would then be uh, rolled into his arms while the priests of Molech beat a loud drum in order to uh, uh, drown out the screams of the baby from those who were offering their children to Molech. Molech was the consort of the ancient goddess Ashtoreth, and the worship of Molech and Ashtoreth involved gross sexual immorality and temple prostitution. And on a practical level, what that produced was essentially the worship of sexual immorality under the guise of spirituality. Well, the problem with all of this sexual immorality is that you end up with a bunch of unwanted pregnancies. And so how to deal with it? Well, they found a way to deal with it, and it was simply by offering these babies to the god Molech. And the parallels with abortion are very, very strong, where you have the rejection of God's Word concerning sexual expression and purity, then as a result, the engaging in widespread sexual immorality, resulting in unwanted babies, and then the search now for a way to get rid of them under some kind of insane rationale. And it was the sacrificing of their children in this way by the Canaanites that was the last straw for God before He brought His fierce judgment down upon them and then caused the children of Israel to come in and wipe them out and to possess the land. Later on, in human history, when the children of Israel took up the worship of Molech themselves and they began to do the very things that the Canaanites were doing, God brought His judgment down upon them and then sent them into the Babylonian captivity. And my point is this, that this sort of thing has always been an indication that God's judgment and God's fierce and righteous anger and judgment is very, very near. And how can it be any different for the world today? Tenth is listed unforgiving in verse 3. The world will become a more graceless and a less merciful place. Next is listed slanders. Spreading lies about others will become more and more common. And of course, uh, this is everywhere. You've got blogs, you've got um, uh, all co entire industries, television channels that are given over to simply slandering uh, stars that have no basis in truth what it is that's being uh, brought out, and, and, uh, and hardly anyone thinks anything of it anymore when people slander others behind their back. And slander is 
rampant for the simple reason that people love to believe lies. What a person says is always a reflection on them. What a person believes in terms of slander is always a reflection on them. And we tend to believe what we want to believe. Next, he goes on to speak about without self-control, that morally the world will become more and more undisciplined. People's lives will be completely out of uh, control. And this whole idea of discipline is, is uh, lost, is, is a, a needed characteristic of of human life. It's disappearing today. So increasingly, less discipline and absence of self-control in eating and spending and sexual activity and so forth. People operating less out of what is right or what is wrong and more out of if it feels good, do it. And thus the world becomes more and more enslaved to sin. He talks about brutality of the last days, and the word means savage, that people are going to become more and more savage uh, morally. They're going to live like an animal that hasn't been uh, tamed. It seems like every single day, and, uh, and I limit my news intake, but I'm aware of what's going on in the world, but every day we're exposed to some new horror uh, in this regard. We see it in Nice uh, uh, this week. People becoming savages, uh, ISIS, ISIL, uh, the drug cartels, but then individuals uh, as, uh, as well. Every day we read about now somebody punching someone out in a restaurant and a riots in those restaurants or drive-by shootings and so forth. I saw a video not long ago that was just horrifying. It just makes your heart sink. Here was a man that was coming out. It was an inner city. A man was coming out of a liquor store. And as he came out of the liquor store, two men were standing there who then engaged him in a conversation. There's no audio. It's all video. And as they're involved in the conversation, the man uh, uh, walks through them in order to move away from whatever they're up to. The big guy then blindsides him with a punch, and he falls. There's just a curb from the door to a very narrow curb to the street. The guy's knocked out cold over the curb and into the lane of traffic right there in front of the, or the parking spot in front of the liquor store that's open. Several people ran over to steal his watch and his wallet. Nobody helped him. Nobody even pulled him out of the lane. Nobody thought there is going to be a car coming that is going to run this man over before he comes to. And sure enough, within 30 seconds, a taxi cab comes flying around the corner and runs over him and kills him. Savages. Savages. And these kind of things are happening more and more. And we wonder why people are arming themselves in record numbers and joining militias, and they're growing. People see trouble coming. They see this kind of thing. Despisers of good, people will look down on good in the end days. In fact, they'll uh, despise it. It'll be evil. It'll be lawlessness. People that embrace that will be the heroes of the culture. Traitors, verse 14, and that speaks of the fact that people won't keep their word uh, in the last days. People's promises won't uh, mean anything. Honesty is going to disappear. You can even have a person have them sign a contract as a part of their word, and today you can find a clever lawyer who will uh, get them uh, out of it. God said it would be that way in the last days. Headstrong, verse 4. This talks about recklessness where people will do anything that they want without any thought or regard for the consequences. They will uh, look at this, this is what I want, and forget about everybody else. Haughty, and the idea is swollen with pride, filled with a sense of their own self-importance, lover of pleasure, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They will pursue pleasure 
and, uh, and the experiencing of pleasure is going to become more important to people than loving God. And then very significantly in verse 5, they will have a form of godliness, but they will deny its power. Frighteningly, while this moral collapse is going on, religion is going to prosper. And more frighteningly, there will be a whole world of people in the last days who will claim to be Christians and yet living this kind of life, living a life no different from the world as it's described here. They are going to become lukewarm and absorbed by all of it. And we are strongly told to avoid that kind of Christianity and those kind of Christians like the plague. Now, let me close this morning by uh, uh, talking about an observation that Jesus made concerning the moral condition of the world in the last days. And here's what he declared in Luke chapter 17. And as it was in the days of Noah, he said, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. And likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And Jesus declared that the moral character of man in the last days will be as in the times of Noah. And that was a time of great wickedness, of widespread sexual immorality, a time when violence became the norm. It was a time of man giving himself to evil imaginations continually, a time when the standard of right and wrong had almost been wiped out. Evil was being called good and good was being called evil. And then worst of all, in the midst of all of this wickedness, people were just eating and drinking, and marrying, and giving in marriage. In other words, they went on in life. It was just business as usual. And it would appear that in Jesus' mind, the most astonishing thing about the times of Noah was not the terrible wickedness, but that people could live in the midst of all of that wickedness and come to think that God would never ultimately do something Bring it to a stop. And that is the world that you and I live in today. And that is the condition of more Christians than we want to think. And it was in the midst of a world like that that the Lord was so grieved at what man had become that he commanded Noah to build an ark and he proceeded to judge the world. Jesus then also declared that the moral condition of the last days would be as in the time of Lot. That is like Sodom, which was the home of Lot. It was a time when the practice of homosexuality had become widespread and accepted, just as this happened in our day. And I know that homosexuals often feel that they're especially picked on by Christians, that we make more of their sin than we do of other sins. And there's a sense in which that is both true and untrue. There is a sense, very real sense, in which homosexuality is like any other sin, that it is but one sin on a long list of sins that is wrong in the sight of God and that are not to be practiced. But there is something unique about the sin of homosexuality. When it rises up and aggressively demands that society accept it as a legitimate lifestyle and, and even to be given the right of marriage, demands to be put on a par with heterosexual, heterosexuality and heterosexual marriage. Because coming to that position requires two things of a society. First, in order to accept homosexuality as natural, a society must first reject the clear commands of God prohibiting it. And in order to do that, they must reject God as the moral authority of the universe and over mankind. 
Second, as the Holy Spirit declares in Romans uh, chapter 1, in order to accept homosexuality as natural, a society must also reject the witness of nature. Because at this point, even after having rejected the existence of God, the homosexual still has a problem. Because at that point, nature then raises its hand and to complain that the homosexual lifestyle is not natural. And everyone can see it's true because the plumbing doesn't match. In heterosexual marriage, everyone can see that that goes there. Nature testifies that the sexual relationship is intended to be between a man and a woman because the two bodies are perfectly compatible for one another for that. But in homosexual sex, there is no accommodation of nature for it. And it is nature's way of saying, no, no, no. Homosexual is not only contrary to God's law, but it is also contrary to nature. It is unnatural, and everyone can understand that. And it is this disregard of even the witness of nature that makes homosexuality different from heterosexual sin, from fornication, from adultery, from prostitution. Those sins are equally serious sins, but they are not sins against nature. They are not sins against design. So in order for a society to legitimize the practice of homosexuality, it must do it in the face of two things. Number one, in the face of the witness and the Word of God, and then number two, in the face of the witness of nature. And if a society does this, it crosses a very dangerous line. And it is one of the reasons that historically, when a society legitimizes homosexuality, is the beginning of the end for that nation or that empire. Because once a nation can convince itself that homosexuality is natural and legitimate, then there isn't any ungodly thing that they cannot convince themselves of. There isn't anything, no sin, that they then cannot come to justify in their minds. It requires a searing of the conscience to do this, and it requires an intellectual dishonesty to do this that will then, of course, be carried to other areas of life. And that gets very, very dangerous, morally speaking. It is better for a person with homosexual temptations and tendencies to deny themselves the expression of their sexuality than to successfully push a nation and a world into that position. And I know that Christians and I know that non-Christians tire uh, of the, uh, the body of Christ's focus upon the sin of homosexuality and abortion, but it's necessary because once a world can justify the death of its children in the womb as a convenience simply because their screams can't be heard when they die, and once a nation or a world can justify homosexuality as natural, then there isn't any ungodly thing that they cannot convince themselves of morally. There isn't any ungodly thing that they cannot justify in their minds all of the needed safeguards of God, of conscience, of intellectual honesty are gone. And it should frighten anyone as to what lies on the other side of all of that. Because now you have a moral free-for-all, one in which society begins to unravel and ultimately devolves into moral chaos. Because the problem that society then creates for itself is this. How do I choose to protect the sinful expression 
of homosexuality, an open violation of God's Word and even nature, and then forbid the rest of society from doing whatever they want to do in their practice of sin or on the basis of their own natural urges, even if it violates God's law and nature? And the answer is, you can't. At least you can't for very long. And as the Scriptures lay out in Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 31, there is a vast array of sin that will quickly line up ready to follow homosexuality through the opening that they have provided. In other words, you haven't ended your problems with legitimizing homosexuality. Society's problems are just beginning. And in all reality, the thinking homosexual with all other thinking people should be very alarmed at society's acceptance of their homosexuality because of the dangerous precedence society sets in doing so and because of how far down the road of moral anarchy and lawlessness it reveals us to be as a nation and as a world. It's important to remember as Christians during times such as this that we remember that we are the pillar and the ground of truth in the world. Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3, 16, 15. He said, but if I'm delayed, I wrote, write so that you will know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. That is, as Christians, we are going to be faithful to God's Word and both are believing and are doing and in doing so, we are to then support and uphold the truth of God and hold it high for all to see. It doesn't mean that a Christian should be unloving or uncivil to any sinner. It would be completely unlike Christ to be like that. It doesn't mean that we need to necessarily focus upon the sin of abortion and the sin of homosexuality and make it the focus of our ministries or the focus of our Christian lives necessarily. But it does mean that we're to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world in this regard, that we understand how grave the moral condition of our nation and our world is at this moment this morning, and how close God's judgment might be if it hasn't already begun in the world, and that we must remain faithful to God's Word and the moral standard that it contains, that we must be the moral conscience of the world while the world around us is so hell-bent on searing their own conscience. Do not cave on the moral issues of our day. For God's sake, for your sake, and for the sake of the world around us, and even those who hate us and are offended by the positions that we take. Don't follow insanity or you will become insane. And if the whole world becomes insane morally, all at the same time, that's not going to help anyone. Jesus declared, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, then how will it be seasoned? It's in good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. 
You're the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. And let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Not an easy sermon to deliver. Not an easy sermon to listen to. No, please just. But it's so important to realize how ripe the world that we live in is for judgment. And to view the approach of the Lord Jesus and the rapture of the church, not just in geopolitical terms or in terms of Europe or whatever, but to look at what the Bible has to say about the condition of the world morally at the time of his return and to realize what it is speaking to us every single day. I speak to you as adults in this room and I exhort my own heart. We must see how ripe the world is that we're living in for judgment. Don't fall asleep to that. Increasingly, God has ignored. Man thinks himself supreme and judgment is hanging over the head of the entire world. And it's coming in the form of the great tribulation. And who will be able to complain when ultimately it comes? How much longer will God wait? I don't know. But I do know that he's waited another day to give you a chance to repent of your sin if you've never done so and to put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins in order to receive salvation and forgiveness and to be brought into the safety of God's family. Do you realize that not a single person will ever miss heaven and end up in judgment because of any of the sins that are in that list in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, or any of the sins that I have talked about this morning, God is eager to forgive every single one of them. And he loves us enough to have given his own son in order to provide the price that was required for us to be forgiven of our sins and to repent of whatever our moral darkness might be in order that we might be able to come into his glorious light and into the beauty of the life that he has planned for us and the beauty of his family. The only sin that cannot be forgiven is a lifelong rejection of his son and the forgiveness of all the other sins that is found only in him. God loves you this morning. Whatever your sin, wherever you've been, whatever you have done, come to him this morning. Repent of your sin. Trust in him. Believe in his Savior. And begin the relationship with him that you have been created for. And there will be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after this service and they would love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, the indoctrination of the culture is so strong. And yet the rationalizations and the justifications for darkness and the move stronger and stronger into immorality are so flimsy and so frightening in their implications. We see a world that is 
determined to be lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God. And we see the terrible price that the world is paying, that children are paying, that everyone is paying, that even they are paying as a result of it. And we thank you for your word that has gone through thousands of years of history and it's been the touchstone of truth, never changing, never moving in our seasons of insanity. And we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, these folks have been very, very patient and very attentive as an audience this morning and listening to your word. I thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, that you speak to those who stand here, who na here now who might have been tempted to get up and walk out in the middle of things, but they sat and they listened. And I pray that you would give power and weight, Lord, to your view and your perspective and your truth and your commandments in their heart as they walk away and think about these things. I pray that that internal conversation would occur with you, and that they would realize, as Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, that you have I become your enemy because I have told you the truth. Lord, I pray that not a single person, whatever their sin or their tendency, would ever view you as their enemy simply because you will tell us the truth like no one else will. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your loving Father's heart behind it, Lord. And I pray and we pray for every single Christian that stands before you in this room that has lost their savor morally. They are no longer taking the stand in their own life that they ought to, in their own practice, Lord, in their own perspective and worldview. And I pray, Lord, for a spirit of conviction upon their heart and our hearts, Lord, that we might repent of that and that we might be the pillar and the foundation of truth and the conscience of the world that you have called us to. And I ask this and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mike, will you close us?